1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our first class in a four-part series where I'm going to be helping you to learn Buddhist chanting. We're going to start out today with a little bit of discussion around the history of Buddhist chanting and how it was used during the lifetime of the Buddha and why it was used during the lifetime of the Buddha. Then I'm going to share with you the benefits of how we can incorporate Buddhist chanting into our practice and what benefits we'll experience from that. Then I'm going to guide you guys in learning three major or key or popular Buddhist chants that you'll find throughout the Theravada Buddhist community. Whenever you go into various temples or venues that are sharing the Theravada Buddhist teachings, you'll hear these three chants and you'll be able to use those and chant right along with the community. So we're going to be doing that throughout today's class And then the idea is, is that you end up practicing these teachings and chanting, if you like, between now and next Wednesday. And then next Wednesday, I'll be giving you some more guidance and helping you to refine your practice a bit more. And then over the course of the subsequent classes, I'll be helping to give you guys some one-on-one coaching to build up your chanting practice so that you can learn how to incorporate this into your practice and have fun with it and see how it can really benefit you. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I'm really pleased that you're here to learn and understand the teachings of the Buddha. Buddhist chanting is something that was used during the lifetime of the Buddha as a way to remember the teachings. That's the primary reason why it was actually used because during the lifetime of the Buddha, all of his teachings were spoken. They were oral teachings. And for a long time, we've actually thought that he taught in the Pali language because the source text of what we share today and where we source the Buddhist teachings back to is what we call the Pali Canon or the Pali text. We call it Pali because that's the language that the original teachings are captured in. The teachings of the Pali Canon date back to about 1200 years ago. They are the original teachings of the Buddha that go back to 2500 years ago. But the text itself that people source the teachings of the Buddha dates to about 1200 years ago. So it's about 1300 years old, and we thought for a really long time that the Buddha must have actually taught in Pali because the original source text that we look back to is in the Pali language. But in the last few years, I think maybe in the last maybe five to ten years, we've actually uncovered some additional documents that appear to be written in a language that predated Pali. It's a language that's similar to Pali, but it predates Pali. So archeologists and historians think that the Buddha actually probably did not speak in Pali during his lifetime, but instead a language that was a kind of a precursor to Pali. And when he spoke in that language, over the course of 1300 years, the teachings eventually moved into Pali, which is what we are sourcing our teachings back to that date back to the Pali Canon, which we can say originates about 1200 years ago, at least the source that people are using today. So we call it the Pali Canon and the Pali text, and we chant in the Pali language, but there's a very good chance that the Buddha himself didn't actually speak in Pali. And during his lifetime, nothing was written down. It was all an oral practice because the language that he taught in, it didn't have a script. There wasn't an alphabet like today with English. We have A, B, C, D, and so forth to be able to write down and uh, script out our language and our sounds and be able to read and articulate these words both in verbal form but also in written form. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, while written technology was available in places like China and Egypt. It was really kind of just getting started. A lot of places were just drawing pictures or writing images in order to represent certain thoughts and certain ideas. The language that the Buddha spoke in didn't actually have its own script. Even Pali itself doesn't have its own script. We use in the Pali canon the alphabets of english and some different tonal markers in order to represent the sounds that we think are actually pali so this pali canon and this chanting that we use has been handed down through multiple generations of people and it was primarily used during the lifetime of the buddha to remember his teachings because learning his teachings word for word and being able to recite that was a prerequisite for attaining enlightenment a person wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment if they didn't have the ability to remember his teachings. And the more awake that the mind became through training it to attain enlightenment, the more memory that would be there and the individual would have more and more ability to be able to remember the teachings. About twice a month, the Buddha had a an environment where ordained practitioners and others could come together and chant in order to recite his teachings orally. And about twice a month, they would all come together and they would essentially recite his teachings orally through chanting. And this is how chanting got established in the Buddhist tradition. As time went on, chanting continued, but then it became less and less important because we were starting to be able to write the teachings down. Today, we still chant and we still do chanting, but there isn't the importance of chanting in order to remember the teachings because this is no longer an oral tradition. There is an oral component to this tradition, but it's not purely an oral tradition as it was during the lifetime of the Buddha. We can actually read and write and understand the teachings that way, where they didn't have that ability during the lifetime of the Buddha. So people, today will still chant in Pali as a way of showing respect and gratitude to this teachings that have come down from the past. But unfortunately, a lot of people think that because this language and because of the uniqueness of the chanting, that there's some kind of mystical or magical powers associated with the chanting itself, when in reality, there truly isn't. The language of Pali isn't really well known by very many people today. It's a very small, limited community of people who understand the Pali language, and even within that community, they don't even agree 100% on what one word means versus another. Because, since it's no longer a spoken language, it's not being used in common dialogue and common discussion. There isn't a common understanding of what each individual poly word means. This is one of the reasons why you can see different translators using different words when they're translating from Pali into English or some other language that they might be translating into because people don't agree what the Pali words are because we've kind of lost the meaning and understanding of these poly words. Today, there's some people who feel it's utterly important to learn Pali in order to understand the Buddhist teachings. I would say that that's not true because the Pali language, again, it's not very well known. There's very limited number of people who understand it. And there's not very many people who have a common understanding of what these words mean. And if you learn Pali language, it takes an enormous amount of time to actually learn it. But then what you learn is not directly related and comparable to what other people understand. So you could spend an entire lifetime trying to learn the Pali language. And if you learn the teachings in the Pali language, the number of people that you have available to you to help you understand that is very, very limited. So then once you learn the Pali language, you learn the Buddhist teachings in the Pali language, you seek out this limited number of people to actually help you understand the teachings in the Pali language now you have to start reflecting on those and practicing them to train the mind to get the results and now the results will come much later so by putting poly into someone's practice it actually requires a lot more effort and a lot longer time if ever to be able to experience the results of enlightenment nowadays these teachings have been brought from the pali language into localized language like thai and english and others and by doing so now a individual a practitioner who is interested in attaining enlightenment can move right into learning reflecting and practicing the teachings because they already know the language because the teachings are in their native language they don't have to go through 20 years or 30 years of learning the pali language and then another five or ten years to learn the buddhist teachings and then time to reflect on that and practice that to experience the results they can just completely circumvent all of that and go right into learning reflecting and practicing when we learn these teachings in our native language with that said it does help to know a little bit of the pali because you'll hear some different people using it but In all ways of practice, we can really practice all of these teachings through a a native language like English. During the lifetime of the Buddha, the language that he ended up teaching in was a common language that was known by the widest audience possible. Being a prince and a member of a royal family, he spoke a different language growing up in the palace, and it was more of a higher-end, high-class language but only high-class and upper-class people knew that language. So when he left the palace and started to progress on this path to enlightenment and ultimately started teaching, he used the common person's language. He didn't teach in this upper-class language that only a few people understood. He used the language that was most prevalent in the region of the world that he was in. So if a Buddha was alive today, looking at the world and being interested in having as many people learn and understand the teachings as much as possible, in my view, they would teach in the English language because English is an international language that's known by the widest number of people. And by teaching in the English language, it really helps people in their own language, a language that they currently understand, to be able to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings. But as we chant, We still chant in the Pali language. There are some people who choose to chant in their localized language like English or Vietnamese or Chinese or other languages like this, but in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which Theravada means teachings of the elders, this is the tradition of Buddhist teachings that dates closest to the lifetime of the Buddha and it's prevalent throughout the world. In this tradition of Buddhist teachings, we chant in the Pali language. So in Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, in India, in all places around the world that are sharing Theravada Buddhist teachings, they will chant in the Pali language. There's a little bit of a difference in dialect from one country to the other, as you can imagine, because of impermanence. So if you're in Thailand, there's a little bit of a Thai accent to it if you're in sri lanka there's a little bit of a sri lankan accent and so forth and so on but these people coming together from different regions of the world having never met one another ever by learning chanting in the pali language they can actually all chant together in harmony simultaneously but if you were sitting right next to a person who was from a different region of the world, you would hear slight differences in their chanting because of impermanence, but by and large, the chanting would be very harmonious and would go really well together for those people that have learned to chant in the Pali language. With this, I would like to share with you some of the benefits that you can experience through learning and practicing chanting. As I practice chanting, I practice it before meditation and after meditation. So I do it as a way to lead into meditation and a way leading out of meditation. During the Buddha's lifetime, when he taught meditation, he taught that we should set up mindfulness in front of us before we actually do meditation. This is a common teaching that you'll see if you study the words of the Buddha where he's teaching about meditation. He will explain to set up mindfulness in front of you prior to meditating. What mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. He's essentially helping you to understand that don't just walk in and plop down and start meditating, but kind of gradually build up this awareness of mind prior to meditating. Because in meditation, predominantly breathing mindfulness meditation, you're going to be cultivating mindfulness among other aspects of the mind. So if you're going to meditate rather than just walk in the house or walk into the temple or just walk into the forest or somewhere else and plop down and meditate, if you start to set up mindfulness in front of you with something like chanting, it can actually ease the mind into meditation because rather than just kind of going from zero to a 100 miles an hour you've actually kind of gradually eased into meditation by doing some chanting to arise some awareness of mind. And this is one of the things that you can do in order to accomplish that. If you didn't use chanting for any reason, you would probably look at doing something else to set up mindfulness in front of you to help you gain more benefit out of your meditation session itself. The other thing that learning chanting does and can do for the mind is it helps you to develop this awareness of mind, but it also helps you to develop concentration and memory. These are aspects of the enlightened mind that will end up needing to be trained and cultivated in order to experience the results. Because if you've been studying with me for any amount of time, you understand that this path to enlightenment is bringing the mind to the middle where it's performing optimally. The enlightened mental state is peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. And as a result of that, in clearing out all the pollution in the mind, the enlightened mind will experience focus, concentration, clarity of mind and deep memory. But the mind is very similar to a muscle, say a muscle like a bicep. If you never exercised your bicep, it's not going to have very much strength. The mind is the same way. If you don't exercise the mind, it's not going to have the qualities of the enlightened mind that you're aspiring to attain. So, by using chanting to set up mindfulness in front of you, you're exercising the mind to develop awareness of mind. And there has to be a certain level of concentration that gets developed over multiple sessions in order to actually concentrate and focus on doing the chanting. And then, of course, There's a certain amount of memory that needs to kick in at some point. Maybe when you first start learning, you learn from a paper or from a sheet or a book or something like this. But as you go and you develop your chanting practice more and more, you start memorizing the teachings. And this is helping to exercise the mind so that you develop this awareness of mind or mindfulness, this concentration, this focus, this clarity of mind, and this memory and that's one of the ways that you can do it, is through developing a chanting practice. As you're chanting, there also needs to be a certain awareness of breath, which is part of meditation. In order to meditate, you need to develop awareness of breath in order to bring the mind into the present moment and focus it on that fixated point of the breath where you can develop your concentration and bring the mind into the present moment. Well, when you're chanting, there needs to be a certain awareness of breath. Anybody who's ever done any singing, you know this, that singing is a lot about breath control and having awareness of the breath. Well, chanting isn't singing, but through chanting, there needs to be a certain awareness of breath and knowing when to breathe in and breathe out and having that awareness can actually help you as you ease into meditation, that you don't just plop down into meditation with a confused mind with no awareness of breath, But instead, you do this little bit of practice in order to bring the qualities of mind together that you need for meditation, but then also helping you develop this awareness of breath as you move into meditation. Chanting can also have this nice effect to the mind where it slows the mind down, it relaxes it, and eases it into meditation. Because you're going to need to be able to read characters off of a paper, bring those into the mind convert those into some audible sound, and then you say those sounds, and as you say them, they come into the ear and help to kind of relax the mind or slow the mind down. If you tried to chant really, really fast or really abruptly, then it wouldn't have the same effect. So by chanting, it actually helps to slow the mind down and kind of get into this tempo of being aware of the mind, aware of the breath, slowing the mind down, easing it into meditation to ultimately help you get the benefit out of meditation itself. The meditation is where the real benefit is, but there's also these other benefits associated with chanting that we're discussing now. Another one is as you're early in your practice and you're developing understanding of the three universal truths, The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, you're learning meditation, you're learning the Five Precepts, and you're building up your practice more and more. Some people have trouble observing progress in their practice, and it can sometimes perhaps be a little bit dissuading for them. But through chanting, you have this audible indication that your practice is improving. Because from one session to the next, or one week to the next, or one month to the next, you see this improvement in your ability to say the chants or remember the chants. You hear the beauty and the sound of the chants improving more and more, and this can help motivate you along the path while having this audible indication that your practice is improving. As I mentioned, these chants are handed down from one generation to the next. And the vast majority of the chanting are the teachings of the Buddha. That's what people will tend to focus on. If you really got into a Buddhist chanting practice, you would be chanting word for word in Pali, the teachings of the Buddha. The chants that I share with you, I don't think actually existed during the lifetime of the Buddha. I think these were created after his death, because as you'll see, the chants are a way to pay respect and homage to the Buddha and he wouldn't have taught that for students to do that because a perfectly enlightened buddha isn't going around teaching people to respect them they're actually just practicing the teachings respecting other people and then as a result of them respecting other people other people choose to respect them so once he died i think that what people did is they created these chants out of respect and homage for the buddha So these chants have been handed down from one generation to the next through what we might consider our elders, the elders of this community dating back, you know, however many thousands of years ago when these chants actually came into being used. So one of the qualities of mind that need to be developed in order to attain enlightenment is respect for all beings and also having gratitude. And one of the things that you can cultivate as part of your chanting practice is this respect and gratitude for the elders who have passed these teachings down. Because the only reason why you're learning any of these teachings from the Buddha is because there's 2,500 years of history, not just the chanting, but... The Three Universal Truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all the other teachings that are shared, they've been passed down from person to person to person to person until the point that they're now actually reaching you. And cultivating respect and gratitude for that through your chanting practice can then kind of spoil over into your daily life where you're actually having respect and gratitude for the elders around you, which can be a really wise way of practice. With all of these benefits that I share, it's really important to understand that there's absolutely no magical or mystical benefits associated with chanting. The Buddha's teachings, while some people do chant and say that there are mystical and magical benefits, this isn't what the Buddha actually taught. During his lifetime, it wasn't about any mystical, magical things. It was about learning reflecting and practicing teachings to train the mind and move it to this enlightened mental state. It's not about rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. You might hear people say that if you chant this chant, you'll get an extra long life. Or if you chant this chant, you'll eliminate all your unwholesome karma. Or if you chant this chant, you'll get to enlightenment. Or if you chant this chant, it'll bring your husband or your wife back to you. Or if you chant this chant, you know, some other beneficial thing is going to happen for you. But this is all belief. It's not based in the teachings of the Buddha. And one of the ways that you can see that to be true is, of course, learn the words of the Buddha through his actual teachings and see what he says. But more importantly, you can just test it out for yourself. If you're in a community of practitioners that say, "Okay, chant this chant and you'll get an extra long life. Okay, I understand what you're saying. So that means if this is true, there would be lots of people who are 150, 200, 300 years old in this community because by chanting these chants, it produced these extra long lives. And that means there's going to be lots of 150, 200, 300 year people sitting around. And if you don't see any people that are 150, 200, 300 years old, then you know this isn't the truth. And if there truly is something like that that exists on this planet, don't you think that everybody would already know it by now? Like it would have spread like wildfire. There isn't this kind of like secret mystical chant that only two people in the world know and it's just kind of put out little by little and nobody knows what that is and you need to have these special two or three people share these chants with you in order to get this special effect this is not the way the Buddha taught. He shared his teachings openly and freely with anybody and everybody who's interested in learning. He didn't hold the teachings back, make them exclusive, and there's some kind of secretive way that only certain people are allowed to learn this chant, and it produces these special benefits of these mystical and magical things. That's not the way the Buddha taught at all. So while we're not judging those people, while we're not looking down on them, just know that it exists, that you will read books, you will go into temple environments, you will talk to people that will tell you very adamantly that this chant is going to produce some beneficial effect in terms of more beauty or a long life, or it's gonna help you get to enlightenment or something along those lines but it's just not true. You can look at something as simple as the Eightfold Path, which the Buddha pointed to and said, this is the way to attain enlightenment through the Eightfold Path. This is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. There's nowhere along this path that you see right chanting or right rituals and ceremonies or right worship. You don't see that anywhere on the path because that's not part of the path to enlightenment. But the qualities of mind that I share with you that can be cultivated through chanting are part of this path, like developing mindfulness and concentration, and also developing this respect and gratitude and memory. All of these things are part of the path. So where I would share chanting with you is as a way to help you deepen your practice of meditation, to ease the mind in the meditation, and then also to ease it out of meditation so that your meditation session can be more successful. And whether you choose to practice chanting is totally up to you. There's people who are enlightened who do practice Buddhist chanting, and there's people who are enlightened who don't practice Buddhist chanting. Buddhist chanting is not required in order to attain enlightenment. But what i always suggest people to do when they're learning with a teacher is to learn and practice what they're sharing try it out and test it for a while and then see how it works for you and if you feel that it's something that's beneficial then you can use it and this particular teaching i share that if it doesn't feel right for you if it's not something that you enjoy doing if you don't feel that it's cultivating the same qualities that i'm sharing with you here then just leave it to the side and forget about it as long as you're working towards developing your practice of the Eightfold Path, that's what's important. There's really hardly anything else that I would share with you that meets these same criteria. I share this with you and say, okay, you can learn it and it will benefit you, but if you don't need it, you can set it aside. There's very few things like that that I would ever share, and where I do share something like that, I will let you know. But everything else along this path is something that you need to learn and you need to practice in order to attain enlightenment, like breathing mindfulness meditation. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without that loving kindness meditation. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without that all the steps of the Eightfold path. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without that and all the other things that I've shared as part of this program so far. So in this group learning program, this is the first and only thing that I'm sharing with you that I'm saying, okay you can learn this try it out test it see how it works for you if you come to a point where you're like "Eh, i'm not really getting that much benefit from it then just set it aside at least you have the wisdom to know what it is and how some people choose to use it so let me pause here and see what questions you guys have After our questions, I will go into sharing the actual chants with you, helping you understand them, helping you understand the translations, and then guiding you along and actually doing some chanting so that you can learn these chants one by one. The way you can ask questions on what I've shared so far is put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and our moderators will call on you and be sure your questions get asked during the class.
2: Hi, Nathan so in essence we can consider chanting a form of like a bridge for meditation
1: essentially that's exactly the way i think of it it's kind of like bridging the gap whereas if you're coming from outside or you're active in your home or you're at work or doing some work at home and you're like oh, i would like to do some meditation rather than just kind of plop down and do that you can use this bridge or this kind of period of time, it only takes about two and a half minutes to do these chants from beginning to end. There's three chants that I do. It only takes about two and a half minutes, but it's this nice bridge to kind of help ease the mind into meditation, away from work, away from your active lifestyle, away from whatever you've been involved in prior to meditation, just to kind of ease into meditation a bit.
2: And you said that it can also ease the mind out of meditation. I was wondering. I can see the benefits of easing the mind into meditation and perhaps having a deeper meditation. Can you explain the benefits of easing the mind out of meditation through it as well?
1: Sure. You know, when you're in meditation, some people get a little bit hesitant to kind of really let go and allow the mind to get really deep into meditation. And because of that, they kind of hold back a bit and they don't really let go as much as they could. So if you really let go in meditation and really hone in on the breath and focus on the breath, the mind can get deep, 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 deep into meditation. And this is where you experience that middle way. And you know when the mind is there being completely peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. In order to come out of that in meditation, you could just kind of pop out if you like. But if you've been really working on the mind and you're really deep into meditation, it's kind of nice to gradually ease out of it. It's almost like if you were scuba diving, you kind of ease down under the water and gradually move down into the depth of the water. And then when you are coming out of the water, you gradually ease up out of the water and resurface again. You don't just pop up to the top of the surface if you've been scuba diving. You can actually die from doing that if you scuba dive. So, in meditation, you're not going to die if you just pop out of meditation, but the mind can actually just gradually ease out of meditation, allowing the mind to absorb those benefits of meditation and carry it with you in daily life more than if you just try to pop out of meditation.
2: And inevitably, in both cases of easing in and easing out, we can expect through the practice of chanting that we can have a deeper experience of meditation.
1: Exactly. That's what I'm sharing is that your meditation experience will be much deeper and therefore much more beneficial. You can get into meditation easier. Sometimes when you sit down, at least when I first started meditating, my mind would sometimes be really busy and just sitting down and trying to meditate, the mind was too busy. And I use walking meditation in that case uh, when I, I used to have those experiences in the past. And that really helps. But also chanting can really help, too, if you've kind of got this busy mind and you're looking to focus it in order to meditate. If you just go from working on the computer for eight hours and then, boom, you're into meditation, the mind can be kind of overactive and you struggle for that first however long in meditation to bring it into the middle and get real benefit. So if you use this bridge, this little buffer that you learn chanting and develop that practice it can help you to kind of let go of that overactivity and ease the mind into meditation so that right from the beginning of your meditation, you start getting benefits right away. Rather than 5, 10, 20 minutes into your meditation, you can start reaping the rewards of that meditation right from the beginning because you did this little bit of chanting. Thank you.
3: Let's get a Basim now. We have a question from Rick. He says, do you use the same chants for each of the three meditation periods throughout
1: the day? Yes, I'll use the same chants, the same three chants. If I'm going to chant, I will use all three. As you learn, if you haven't chanted before, you might just pick one and kind of learn that really well. And then once you get that one, then add a second one or add a third one. Or some people like to just learn all three from the beginning and just work on all three. It's totally up to you. But if I chant, I will do all three of them. There are situations where sometimes I don't chant. So sometimes my son will come and sleep in the room with me and he's already asleep by the time I'm ready to meditate. So I won't do vocalized chant. Or if I'm on an airplane, for example, traveling 24 hours around the globe from one point to the next, if I'm in an airport or from on the plane, I won't do like a vocalized chant. Sometimes I'll just go into meditation because the mind's already pretty peaceful and calm. Other times, I'll kind of quietly, in an inaudible way, just kind of go through the chants in my mind prior to doing the meditation. So just like everything, it's impermanent. While we develop this chanting practice and we work at it, and I use it primarily in most meditations that I do, it's not permanent. It's not something that I do every single meditation because there's some times where I just do it inaudibly, going in and out. There's times where I do it audibly, both in and out. There's time where I do it audibly going in, but I don't do it on the way out. But when I first started chanting for a long time, I made it a habit to do it on the way in and on the way out to really develop it and develop the mind and exercise the mind. But all the while I knew that, okay, this is not something that I can do every single time. So even early in practice, when I used to travel between the US and Thailand a lot, I would still do meditation on the plane, but I wouldn't chant audibly. So just keep that in mind that while you might develop this practice and maybe 90%, 80% of the time you'll maybe chant going in and out of meditation, there'll be times where you won't chant. And that's because of the universal truth of impermanence, that chanting isn't permanent. Thanks,
3: Tisha. No more questions
1: for now. All right. Well, let's look at the first chant that I'll share with you guys, which we call the Triple Gem or the Triple Jewel. This is a very common chant that if you're involved in any Buddhist events at any temples or any different locations where there's Buddhist activity going on, you will typically have this chant kind of open things up. This is a very common one that people will use. We call it the Triple Gem or the Triple Jewel because whenever you see the number three in Buddhist culture or in this Buddhist tradition, it relates to the Buddha, his teachings, and his community of practitioners. That's called the Triple Gem or the Triple Jewel. And the Buddha taught that in order to attain enlightenment, One would have to have confidence in him being the fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. They would need to have access and confidence to his teachings. And they would also need to be part of and have confidence in the community itself. Without these three things, somebody wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. So if you didn't have confidence in the Buddha and you're like, oh, this was just some other guy in history. You know, he taught a couple of interesting things. But oh, well, you know, his teachings really aren't that important. He really wasn't fully enlightened. If you thought that way, then you're not going to attain enlightenment through his teachings because you don't have any confidence that he was actually enlightened. So why would you even move towards the path to enlightenment? If you didn't have access to his teachings and confidence in those, then you would never be able to attain enlightenment either because you don't even have the words that he spoke during his lifetime, you would need to have the actual teachings that he actually taught during his lifetime to be able to attain enlightenment. And the more that you learn those, reflect on them and practice them with guidance, seeing the truth to acquire wisdom, then you build your confidence more and more, eroding any doubt about his teachings, and you'll be able to move towards enlightenment through having access to his teachings and confidence in his teachings but you also need this third thing, which is you need to be part of a community. Without being part of a community of other practitioners, you wouldn't have any kind of role models. You wouldn't have anybody that can kind of look at your mind and observe your practice and help you along the way. So it's being part of a community that is going to allow you to participate with other practitioners who you can observe like, oh, I like how they're practicing right speech. They do that very well. Let me incorporate some of that into my life. Or, oh, let me talk to James about how he's doing meditation and what he observed about how he ramped up his breathing mindfulness meditation practice. This can be insightful to me as well. So having confidence in the Buddha, having confidence in his teachings and having access to A community of practitioners is the three things that a practitioner will need in order to attain enlightenment and that's why we call it the triple gem or the triple jewel and we will start off each event in Theravada Buddhist cultures and traditions and venues typically chanting this as a group and the way that it starts is there's three individual phrases there's one that pays respect to the Buddha there's one that pays respect to his teachings and one that pays respect to the community. And what you would end up doing is you would just bring your hands together in kind of like a, a palm-to-palm position, and you would place that at your sternum. And then you would take a nice deep breath and then you would chant in Pali. Arahamsama. And you see there I put a period. That period is that's the end of that phrase. And typically what the community will do at that point is people who are kind of sitting on the floor and able, they will actually prostrate down to the ground placing their hands and their head on the ground as a way of prostrating and showing respect and helping to cultivate humbleness and empty any conceit from the mind. If people are sitting the way that you see me when I'm teaching, I would just take my hands and raise them up to the forehead, placing the thumbs at the eyebrows. And that's the way that we usually do it when we're kind of sitting in a chair or otherwise not able to maybe prostrate to the ground. This particular phrase is translated here for you, where it helps you to understand that what you're chanting is the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and self-awakened. I bow down before the awakened perfectly enlightened one. This is one of the ways that you know that the Buddha didn't actually develop this chant and actually teach it because he didn't teach people to bow to him. People chose to bow to him, but he didn't order them to do it or tell them to do it. They just did it as part of their practice, as a way of showing respect and gratitude and helping them to eliminate conceit or any ego that's in the mind. Here, when they say the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self-awakened, This is meaning he's worthy of respect, he's worthy of gratitude, and that's because he's rightly self-awakened. This is the first criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha, is that they attain enlightenment on their own. Without the help of any teachers or any guides, they awaken the mind in their own independent practice without any guidance from any teachers. So that's one of the things that makes someone a perfectly enlightened one. The reason why we say perfectly enlightened is because their mind isn't influenced by any outside sources. If somebody has learned with a teacher, then they're going to have some amount of extra things that aren't exactly what the teachings are to get to enlightenment. That person can get to enlightenment with another teacher, but there might be 10% or 20% or 30% of the things in there. Who knows? of things that don't really necessarily lead to enlightenment, but the other things that they learned that 60, 70, 80, 90% of things, those are the things that led to enlightenment. But that individual who's enlightened may not fully understand that these five or 10% of things aren't actually required in order to attain enlightenment. It's only a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha who hasn't learned with any teachers and attained this mental state on their own with their own devices, their own work, their own effort that is rightly self-awakened, uninfluenced by any teachers. And they are perfectly enlightened, meaning all they know is the path to enlightenment. That's the only thing their mind knows. They don't have any other influences from outside. So during the lifetime of a Buddha, the teachings are really strong, really vibrant, They're shining in the world. And then over time, once a Buddha dies, they will typically kind of slowly degrade from there because people will kind of gradually introduce things that aren't actually the Buddhist teachings. And this is why we've gotten to the point where we are today, where there is a lot of arguing and fighting over what the Buddhist teachings are and what they're not. But if you know what the Buddhist teachings are and your mind has eliminated discontentedness, then you know the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and there's nothing to argue about. You don't have to argue with somebody about what the teachings are because you know what the teachings are because your mind has eliminated discontentedness. You can observe that for yourself. And an enlightened being has no interest in arguing with anybody whatsoever. So a perfectly enlightened one, will have awakened their mind on their own. We call them perfectly enlightened because they're not influenced by anyone else. And as difficult and challenging as you'll see that moving the mind to enlightenment is, even with the teacher, to be able to do that on your own without any help, without any guidance, is an enormous feat. While it's not easy to attain enlightenment, it's not difficult either when you have the guidance that you need. But as you'll see, even with guidance, it is quite challenging to progress on this path. You've really got to work at it and stay dedicated and diligent along the way. And an individual who's a perfectly enlightened one will have had to develop all of those qualities of mind to attain enlightenment on their own without the help of anyone else. And this is why the Buddha is so highly respected because he was able to do that on his own And then he dedicated the next 45 years of his life, sharing that with others without any interest in anything beneficial for himself, but instead just to help others. All he was interested in is having the supplies and resources to sustain his life and stay alive. He wasn't interested in lots of wealth or material possessions or things like this because he already had that before. And he knew that that's not what leads to peacefulness and contentedness. So he gave all of that up and shared these teachings for 45 years. And because of this, having done this by himself and dedicated so much time to helping people over the 45 years of his remaining life, people had enormous amounts of respect for him because they experienced this mental state themselves as they became more and more enlightened. So this first phrase is all about showing respect and gratitude and homage to the Buddha. The second phrase here is for his teachings. The way that this one sounds is like this. And there again, you see the period where that's the end of the phrase. And what this one translates to is The teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. I pay respect to the teachings, having gratitude and appreciation and admiration for these teachings that are leading you to enlightenment. And if you observe any improvement along this path to the condition of the mind, then you know the Buddha was enlightened and you have respect and gratitude for these teachings that have been handed down for so long. So this phrase helps you to cultivate that gratitude and appreciation for the teachings. And then this last phrase is for the community of practitioners. It sounds like this. So that would be one time through. You would do each phrase one time. And this last particular phrase translates to the community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples has practiced well. I pay respect to the community. So during the lifetime of the buddha there were multiple communities of people who were learning and practicing teachings that they thought were leading to enlightenment but it was the buddha's teachings that led to enlightenment that's why we still have them today but during the lifetime of the buddha there aren't any physical characteristics that identify someone as being a buddha or being enlightened the only way that someone would know that he's enlightened is to observe his conduct over a period of time or to learn and practice his teachings and see the truth for themselves that these teachings are leading to an improved condition of their mind so the people that were part of the buddhist community they knew that he was a buddha and they knew his teachings led exactly where he said they did because they could observe the condition of their mind gradually improving so here this last phrase is paying respect and gratitude to his students that they're practicing these teachings well because those are the role models for other people to be able to learn and practice. You wouldn't be able to just go off by yourself and learn and practice teachings without having this confidence for the Buddha, access to his teachings and role models within a community to be able to talk to and get help with. Only a Buddha would actually be able to do that. And that's one of the qualities that makes a Buddha a Buddha. You will sometimes hear people referring to the triple gem or the triple jewel as the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. You guys know what a Buddha is. we discussed that as part of this group learning program already. The Dhamma is the teachings. I just translate this into pure English so that you don't need to know any of the Pali to glean the benefit of the teachings. But what the Dhamma is, is it's the teachings of the Buddha. The Sangha is the community of practitioners. So I translate it here to just say the community, But you can see in the pali itself that it has these buddha dhamma sangha in the pali so here where it says arahang sama sam puto that puto is buddha right we call buddha but in pali it's puto right and then in the second phrase where it says Sawakato That's the Dhamma, right? So the Dhamma are the teachings. And then where it says that's the Sangha, that's the community of practitioners. So, you can see some of these words and you can come to understand what some of these words mean, but you really don't need to go out and actively learn Pali and try to figure that language out. It would take you pretty much a lifetime to do that. There's already people in our community that have done that and then we can benefit from their translation so that you can move right in to learning and practicing his teachings. So let me see what questions you guys have about this and then we'll chant this together and i hope help walk you guys through to learn how to do the chant and how to breathe and all those other things. Are there any questions on this chant?
2: I was wondering, as we learn the chants in Pali, is it equally important that we learn the English translations?
1: I think it helps to know the English translations because it puts more meaning into the chanting itself. Whereas if you were just kind of chanting Pali, And there wasn't an understanding of what the words meant, then it would kind of be like empty and it wouldn't have the same emphasis and the same meaning. If you'd like to remember the phrases in English, you can. But I think as long as you have a general meaning and understanding that this first phrase is about paying respect and gratitude to the Buddha. The second one is about paying respect and gratitude, having appreciation for the teachings. And then the same thing, having gratitude and appreciation for the community of practitioners then that's what this is really meant to do. And this can help you to cultivate appreciation and gratitude for each other. You know, for Jacqueline, for Donnie, for Rick, for Judith, for Chrissy, for all of you guys coming together week by week in these classes. This chant isn't for you, so don't let it, you know, bolster your ego or your conceit. But as you're chanting it, you know, think about your appreciation and gratitude for all these people that come together every week and you know, all the resources that we're sharing and coming together. Yes, I'm the teacher and I'm sharing these things, but there's lots of people that have been involved in helping me to proofread these books. There's been people that have looked up references and added references to these books. There's people that have contributed a little typo here and there and helped me to improve that. So all of you guys as a community are coming together and practicing well you're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And this is helping you on your path, but it's also helping each other as you come together and you kind of have other people to role model after and also perhaps ask them questions about how they got started or things that they noticed that could improve their progress on the path. So as you're doing this, don't think about this as You're gaining appreciation and gratitude just solely for the elders and the people in the past, but also for the people right now today that are part of this community. And I think as long as you walk away with that understanding of these individual phrases, you don't necessarily have to know and remember the individual words and translations, but having a genuine feeling of what you're chanting can put some more emphasis and importance into the chants themselves, have more meaning for you.
2: Thank you, David. We have a few questions on Zoom, so let's turn it over to Basim.
3: Well, Rick has a question. He says, I'm looking at the text from the Dhammayut, I think, for the United States of America. These chants are also in Pali, and yet the Pali words are used for this chant are different. For instance, the second phrase here says, Budam. Vaga Bantum I'm not sure this a which looks quite different from the a uh, quite different from the uh, phrase on your slide. And yet the English translation is basically the same. I bow down before the awakened list one. Why is the penny different in my chanting book from the one on your slide?
1: Okay, so I'll ask you a question now, Rick. Out of everything you know about the Buddhist teachings, why do you think that the chants are different from one book to the other?
3: I'm going to guess that it's... uh, You said something earlier about regional dialect. I don't know, because for instance, again, this says, I bow down before the awakened blessed one, which is basically the same as yours, which is also in Pali, so I'm not sure unless it's regional dialect.
1: So think back to the three universal truths. Do you remember the... Impermanence. Ah, okay, there you go. All right, so from one book to another, from one temple to another, from one country to another, from one practitioner to another, from one teacher to another, there's going to be this impermanence that you see. So the chance that you're reading, whoever created those, remember that this is an oral tradition. So when they wrote these down in whatever version you're reading, they wrote them down in the way that they hear them. And I wrote them down in the way that I hear them. The way that I chant would be considered like a Thai dialect or a Thai version of chanting. When I chant, people who are familiar with the Thai chanting, they could obviously tell that I've had a lot of closeness to the Thai people because of the way that I pronounce the chants. And the way that I write them out with the script here is in a way that I hear it in the way that we chant it as part of the Thai dialect. But what you're going to see in other books, whether it's Sri Lanka or even other places in Thailand, someone else might have chosen to wrote it down in a different way. And that's because of impermanence. Uh,
3: Yeah, you actually just answered the question I was going to ask. But this is from the uh, this is the one that you order from the Metaphorist Monastery. Um, that, you know, Ajahn Jeff is involved with. So that is Thai forest, but it's Thai forest as opposed to maybe uh, a dialect of Thai that's used in their tradition.
1: Well, you'll see from different teacher to different teacher, even within the same tradition, because there's no centralized organization that is collecting up all the teachings and distributing it. Each individual teacher is putting together what they feel represents the teachings. And then the way that the students know whether that's true or whether it's working or not is based on the condition of the mind if you're learning from a teacher and you can independently verify their teachings then you know okay this is the truth and if you practice those teachings and you see that it's improving the condition of the mind then you know uh aha i'm learning the truth but what one teacher explains and how one teacher writes out a particular chant or another versus another it's not that one teacher is right and one teacher is wrong. It's just different because of impermanence. And the way that you sort through impermanence, this 2,500 years of impermanence, is through your practice. When you learn the teachings, and then you reflect on them, trying to independently verify them, and you then practice them and see the condition of your mind improving, that's how you know what you're learning is the truth, and you can sort through any impermanence. Well, Jethro
3: has a question about the very first line. The first words she says
1: is "ha sounded ma." Say again. Last time I didn't hear all that. Yeah. The first line: "ha
3: arahan sama ha kawa.
1: She asks, "ha sounded ma?" The way that I pronounce this is "arahan sama ha kawas." So it's kind of like a soft H, but see, here's another thing is like, I I think if Judith is still here, Judith chants really beautiful. She chants really beautiful. I really like the way she chants. You'll hear some slight differences between the way her and I chant. And again, it's not about what's right or wrong. Neither one of us are right. And neither one of us are wrong. It's just the way that we choose to chant it and you'll hear these slight differences from person to person and from temple to temple even here in thailand you go to one temple they'll chant it one particular way you go to another temple and they'll chant it a slightly different way this is just impermanence. but if you can learn the way that i'm sharing with you and you'll hear me chanting and then in future classes if judith comes you'll hear how judith chants and other people chant and you'll get a little bit different take on it. And then you choose to chant in the way that feels right and works well for you. But what I share is the way that I chant. And the way that I pronounce that one is Arahang Sammasambhoto Bhagavad Potang Bhagavanthang Apivate Ami so there's kind of like this up and down sound, right? And you might need, if you have the book, volume one, these chants are in chapter 11, if you have a printed version. Okay, so Judith has the laminated copy. What you can do if you have a paper copy is you can put little markers, like tonal markers above and below to help you know when to kind of raise your voice up and raise it down. That can be really helpful for you.
3: Maria has a question. It says- Is there a way we can get the recording of the chants for help with practicing the cadence, tempo, and tune?
1: Yes, I have a video on YouTube and plenty of podcasts where you could be listening to it in your ear while you're chanting at home because it does help to kind of chant along with me as you're learning probably for the first few months it'll really help you to kind of have me in your ear and then kind of turning it down lower and lower and lower as you progress and you get better at chanting you can have the volume less and less so that your voice becomes more confident and more profound but having someone to chant along with can be really helpful that's one of the nice things about meeting as a community And today I'll be chanting with you and helping you to chant. And then in the subsequent classes that we teach over the next three sessions, you'll get to chant together as a group and you'll get to hear other people chant as well. But during your practice at home, I will put some links in the Facebook group so that you can access the audio in either the YouTube channel or on podcast to be able to listen to those while you're practicing at home.
3: Thanks teacher. One more
1: for now. Okay, so let's do this. Let's all chant this together as a group. What I would suggest you guys do is leave the mute on because we tried it a long, long time ago with everybody having the mute off and it doesn't sync up because of the impermanence of the internet. So everybody leave your mute on, but you'll hear me. Bring your palms together in the front of your chest at your sternum and take a nice deep breath at the beginning and then just gradually we'll go slow chant this first phrase nice deep breath take a breath here This is where you do a bow, if you'd like to do that. Nice little bow. Now take a nice deep breath. Nice breath. Dama, Namasa, me. Here's a bow where you take a nice deep breath. So, Patipano, Little breath. Sawaka, sung Little breath and then we bow there at the end so now let's go through it again i won't give quite as much coaching we'll just kind of flow through it a bit more breath Oh, a tongue hacko and hung Breath Sawaka to him Breath Damang Namasami. Breath. Sopadhipa no breath, Sawaka sangho, breath, sangha namami. Okay, now let's do it one more time. I'm not going to cue the breath this time. We'll just go through it chanting. Arahang samasam hotom mahākavā Puatang hakawa and mi. Sawaka to em hakewatamu naman namasamin so bad hipano Okay, it's kind of common in Thai temples to clap at the end of a chant. So, yay, everybody claps. Good job, good job. Any questions on this one before we move on to the next one? Looks like there are no questions at this time there. All right, so let's go to the next chant which is another really, really popular chant. This is the one that like little kids at the age of like two or three, when they first start mouthing a few words, this is the one that Thai parents will typically teach their children to start out with. So if you're looking to kind of have just a small little chant to start out with, you might start out with this one and do this one regularly and then expand and add more and more. But if you're feeling like, hey, I would like to kind of look at all of these at one time and you can just do all three that i teach you today at the beginning and end of each one of your meditation sessions the way that this one sounds is like this Napmoid hasab hako ato. some So it's the same phrase just being repeated three times. This is one of the reasons why it's a little bit easier because it's kind of smaller. And if you learn this one, a lot of the same syllables will show up in the other chant. So some people find it easier to learn this one first and then move into the other ones. Depending on how proficient you are at learning and kind of developing your practice, you might decide to bite off a smaller piece and then expand from there. The English translations here are a little bit similar to what we just saw, even though the chant is very different. The English translation here is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. So that's what we're chanting here. This one is purely for the Buddha himself. Again, it's not a chant that the Buddha would have taught because a Buddha isn't going around teaching people like, bow down to me, respect me. You've got to say these chants in order to respect me. You know, This is conceit or arrogance or pride if somebody came at it that way. Instead, a Buddha is just choosing to be respectful and people choose on their own to respect them back because of the natural law of gamma whatever you put out is gonna come back to you. So this is why this enormous amount of respect came back to the Buddha during his lifetime and after his death. So this chant here tends to be a little bit easier. Does anyone have any questions here before we chant it together as a class? No questions at this time. Okay, so let's bring our hands together same way in the front of our sternum. I'll guide you through it three different times. So we'll do three phrases three times. So we'll essentially chant this same phrase nine times. But I'll give you the cues on the breath along the journey of this chant. And there's no bowing here on this one. We just chant it straight through. So take a nice deep breath here. Breath. Hara, hato, some man, some puta, Breath. Nap more, her Breath. Hara, hato, some man, Breath. breath. NAPMORHASA ARAHATO so that's one time through so this time through i won't cue the breath you'll just know where it is right there in the middle at the end of pakawato. take a little half breath right into the ARAHATO and then take a nice deep breath at the end of the phrase. So nice deep breath here. Namo rasa bhagavatuh Hareh to smas <laughs> bhutasah Namo rasa bhagavatuh so that's the end of that. <clears throat> Normally, we would just move right into the next chant, but let's do this one more time. As a third time through. Nice deep breath. Nap more hasab hako ato. Ara hato. Some putasa. Okay, any questions there on this one? I was wondering, David, if we learn this chant, this particular chant, would we get the
2: same benefits if we use this one in the beginning that we would from perhaps using all three
1: yeah if you just use one chant to start out with it's going to be shorter this one will probably take you all of about a minute to maybe 30 seconds to do three repeats of this phrase so it won't be as an extended amount of time so you won't have as much time to cultivate mindfulness get awareness of breath concentration all those other things But what you're doing is you're building up your practice. Just like when you perhaps started breathing mindfulness meditation, you might have started with five or 10 minutes worth of meditation, and then you're gradually expanding that more and more. And as you expanded your length of meditation, the benefits expanded. The same thing happens with your chanting that initially, if you just do one chant like this, you're going to get some benefits. But as you put more and more of the chants together, the benefits will increase more and more.
2: you have more questions
1: this time all right so let's go to the next one which i call the etp so this one is a little bit more involved chant i think that this one is a bit more challenging for some people at least for me it was and it has a lot more syllables in it but some of them are similar to the ones that we've done before so let me chant it through and then i'll share the translations with you this one is three individual phrases and then You just do it one time, and that's the end of the chanting that I typically will do. So the same thing, what I do is I put the hands at the chest, at the sternum, and I'll just take a nice deep breath, and then I'll just chant it for you so you can hear it once first. (laughs) Iti piso mahakava. Hang some some moto. We cha jaranang ANU Sakato so there at the end, I usually will bring my hands up. It's kind of like a last sign of respect. And I'll just kind of drag that last syllable out like tea. Some people you hear them just cut that off. They'll say, and they'll just stop. But I tend to like to drag it out a little bit. So this one has some similar meaning to the chants that we've already been chanting, but there's a little bit more depth here. So the first one is, he is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one. Consummate in knowledge in conduct. Consummate is like a high level of practice, a high degree of knowledge and moral conduct. That's what that one's talking about. One who has gone the good way, basically one who is walking the path, one who has gone to the light, one who is enlightened, one who is practicing virtuous moral conduct, the upright way, the straight way, the good way. Knower of the worlds, this one is knower of the five realms that the Buddha knew of the five realms and he had awareness of that through observing his past lives in those five realms. So he was the knower of the worlds or the knower of the five realms. Unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. So what a Buddha is doing and what a Buddhist teacher is doing is training the mind of human beings. Of course, the human being is the one who needs to do the work to learn and practice. But a Buddhist teacher and a Buddha is helping to kind of tame the mind of a practitioner. Because before we get on this path, we have all this anger and frustration and sadness. Maybe we have this arrogance, this conceit. We have this aggression. We have this hostility. Uh, You know, maybe we speak in unkind ways. We're disrespectful. But as we learn and practice this path, we kind of bring our moral conduct to be more wholesome. So what these teachings and what a Buddha and what a Buddhist teacher is doing is training the mind of individuals rather than just telling you something and having you believe it. We provide you teachings and help you to recall those teachings and understand those teachings. So the Buddha was called the unexcelled trainer, meaning like very high degree of skill of those who can be taught. Those who can be taught are those who choose to be taught. A Buddha doesn't go out in the world, see somebody who's angry and aggressive and try to forcibly teach them with a whip or with a cane or, you know, try to confront them and tell them how bad of a person they are and they should practice their teachings. A Buddha doesn't do that. A Buddha just waits for people who show up and show an interest in their teachings. And then once they choose to learn, then they can be taught. But if someone's not choosing to learn, they can't be taught. They're not one who can be taught because they haven't chosen to learn. You can't force somebody into attaining enlightenment. It's not possible because in order to attain enlightenment, you need to learn, reflect, and practice. You can't force someone to reflect on the teachings. You can't force someone to meditate. You can't force someone to practice right speech for example and this is why one of the things that we need to do as part of this practice is let go of the world and stop craving for the world to be a certain way but just let people choose to come to these teachings on their own terms that's someone who can be taught because they're choosing to be taught so he's the unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught or those who choose to be taught teacher of humans and heavenly beings The two realms that beings can attain enlightenment in are the human realm and the heavenly realm. So, of course, during the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught many, 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 many humans. But there's also depictions in the Pali Canon of heavenly beings that came to him at different times and asked for teachings as well, because heavenly beings can attain enlightenment as well. There's depictions of times where he would be in a valley or in a grove or something like that. It would be at nighttime and it would just light up with this radiant light from the heavenly beings. And there would be a voice that would ask him for teachings. And then he would share the teachings with them. There's even times where he would go internally in his own mind and kind of teach heavenly beings that way as well. So he's considered to be the teacher of humans and heavenly beings. He's not teaching beings in hell, an animal realm, or the afflicted spirit realm because these beings can attain enlightenment when they're in those realms, but eventually they will make their way through, eventually be reborn into either a human or heavenly realm and be able to have opportunities to attain enlightenment through those realms. And then this last part of this phrase is awakened and perfectly enlightened, just kind of summing it up with that. Do you guys have any questions on this chant or the translations before we start practicing it? No questions
2: on this particular chant, David?
1: Okay, so let's do this the same way. We'll do it three times through. The first time through, I'll cue the breath and help you guys see where the breath is. And then I will do the other two times without cueing the breath, okay? So bring your hands together in front of your sternum. Take a nice deep breath here. Eat the peace, breath. ARAHANG handsome, breath. We char breath. breath. Saka Roka breath. Anu sa breath. Dama sata manu breath. breath. Okay, maybe I'll cue the breath on this second time too, because there's two breaths here in this last phrase. So take a nice deep breath. Breath ara han sammato breath vi ca charanang sambhuno breath sakhato kawito breath anutero breath dhammasati satatava manusana breath okay so i'll do this a third time without cueing the breath but where you hear that little bit of a pause that's the indication for you to take the breath Nice deep breath to start us off. Iti bhi so yam maha ka vah Arahang sammasam ho to Saka to Roka we to purisa dama sati satawa Okay, so that's the third chant. Any questions on this one?
2: We had a question that just came in from Marion about this particular chant. Don't understand. I thought there was not heaven or hell.
1: In the Buddhist teachings, he teaches five realms of existence, he teaches hell animal realm, afflicted spirits, human and heavenly realm. But these realms are not permanent. A being who's reborn in these realms will move throughout these realms until they attain enlightenment. That's the cycle of rebirth. So a being can be reborn from the human realm down into the lower realms. We can be reborn into the heavenly realm, but none of these realms are desirable. None of these realms are a final resting place. None of these realms should be aspired for. Instead, by attaining enlightenment, we escape the cycle of rebirth and escape all of existence in any of these particular realms. The Buddha didn't teach what happens once someone attains enlightenment and dies. He left that as an undeclared teaching of whether there is something or there isn't something after enlightenment. But if one doesn't attain enlightenment, They are going to be reborn in one of these five realms of existence. Any being that's alive today has already experienced countless rebirths throughout these realms. And if beings don't attain enlightenment in their current life, they will continue to roam and wander throughout all of these five realms until such a time that they encounter the teachings and practice to the point where they actually attain enlightenment. So the Buddha does teach these five realms of existence, but they're not permanent and you're not sent there by any particular being. It's all based on your own decisions. So based on your own conduct and your own decisions, your results of your decisions, your karma is going to determine whether you have a peaceful life in this life, whether you're reborn in a future life. But anybody who's currently alive as a being today has not yet attained enlightenment through one of these previous existences. And that's why they're reborn into this human life, for example. But now, once you're in this human life, it's the most ideal time to attain enlightenment. Because in this human realm, you experience all three feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So beings in the human realm tend to have motivation in order to attain enlightenment, because we experience all three feelings. Beings in the lower realms experience mostly painful feelings, like in hell. They experience mostly painful feelings, and they can't really cultivate their consciousness because they're in such agony and such pain. But they will ultimately be reborn into other realms to have the opportunity to attain enlightenment. But they just can't do it from the lower realms. The realm of heaven those beings are experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings. They don't experience any painful feelings or any feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So they tend to lack the motivation to learn and practice the teachings. They can attain enlightenment from the heavenly realm, but they tend to lack the motivation because they're only experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings. So while some beings from the human realm may be reborn into the heavenly realm, It's not guaranteed that you will attain enlightenment from there. Beings can fall down into other realms, even the lower realms, from the heavenly realm. So it's not ideal to be reborn into the heavenly realm because oftentimes those beings lack motivation because they're only experiencing pleasant feelings. They don't have those painful feelings to motivate them to get to enlightenment. But here in this human realm, we have all three feelings and we have the motivation, typically, to move closer to enlightenment and actually attain it.
2: Listening to your chanting, it sounds quite rhythmic. Is it important that as we develop our chanting that we find a rhythm for ourselves?
1: Yeah, there's almost kind of like a metronome to it. You know, When I was learning chanting when I was in America, I was also learning how to play the mandolin at the same time so i was into the metronome a little bit and kind of learning the tempo and it really helps to have a certain tempo with your chanting so this chant like ETP piso it's iti piso bhagava arahang sammasambhuto Sam Puno Sacato Gawitu Anu This isn't the best one to start out with a metronome on, but let's maybe go back to the sa. This is a good one to start out with a, a metronome. So let me do that one. Natmothasa, bhagavato, arahato, sammasambhato. Samputa sa. <laughs> I, I confused the two. Here we go. Nap moha sa Paco ato Ara ato Sama Samputa some ma, some potasa. Nap moha sa Pacoato, Ara, some ma, some I don't necessarily suggest someone start out with chanting with a metronome. But after you learn it, after you get your rhythm, after you kind of get it going, if you want to really tweak it and refine it and kind of dial it up a little bit, a metronome would be something that you could come in with. And not using the clapping metronome that I'm using, because obviously it's not a pure metronome, but you can download apps and you can hear them. Even Google has some that you can get on a browser where it will have a consistent beat to it and you can kind of uh, tweak your chanting. And. Get into that rhythmic chanting by having a metronome.
2: Good advice for those you who know, may like rhythm.
1: Yeah, it becomes fun. You know, oftentimes people think about Buddhist meditation and Buddhist chanting that it has to be so solemn and so serious, and everybody's so uptight and so tense. No, that's not what Buddhism's about at all. Buddhism's about letting go and relaxing and having fun and enjoying life. So if you make a mistake like I just did, laugh at yourself. Have fun with it. Bring a metronome in once in a while. Record yourself and have fun with it and laugh. Don't feel like you need to be perfect from the very beginning. Have fun with it and enjoy it.
2: You mentioned with meditation before that when we're meditating, we're practicing each step of the eightfold path. And I was wondering, is that also true with Buddhist chanting?
1: Um, let's see. To a certain extent, yeah. Yeah, when you're involved in your practice, yeah, to a certain extent, surely. That
2: seems to be all the questions we have for today,
1: then. Okay, so let's do this to kind of finish up with our class today, is let's go all the way back to the triple gem, and let's go through these chants one by one without pausing. We'll go through the sama samputasa once, then we'll move right into the Natmottasah, and then move right into the ETP so. we kind of get in the habit and the flow of actually chanting these all together. And this will help you in your own practice as well. James and I will change the slides so that you can see on the screen what the chants are, and you'll be able to follow along with those. Okay? And I won't cue the breath. You'll be on your own for that. But if you listen to the pause, that's a good indication of there's a breath. And then also when we get to... The end of a phrase that's a good indication that there's a breath as well so let's go ahead and bring our hands together take a nice deep breath and we'll flow right through it <laughs> O TANG MHAKAVANHAG API So, but here, ato, sa, waka, sung, ho, sung, hang, Hara to some sampo tassa Napmo her sab hako ato Hara Hato some sampo tassa Napmo sara to All right, big claps. Good work, good work, everybody. Good job. All right, well, what I would suggest you guys do is between now and next Wednesday, keep practicing these before and after your meditation have a book which they're in chapter 11 or you can download the one pager which is in our Facebook group. If you go to the files section of the Facebook group you'll see a file there where you can download the one pager and you can print it front and back. And you can just have one page and you might even choose to laminate it so that you can just use it and have it in your meditation space and chant before and after each meditation. What you might even decide to do since you're trying to kind of ramp up your practice and use this time wisely is rather than just go through once before your meditation and once after your meditation, you might choose to go through it three times before and three times after just to really get a lot of practice and there might be times where you're not really even planning to do meditation but you just decide to go practice chanting a little bit just go wherever you normally go for meditation or go outside to a park or in the bathroom the bathroom has really good acoustics you can really kind of hear the harmony there a little bit and just practice chanting you don't even have to do meditation you can just practice your chanting which can be really fun and enjoyable, like I said. And as you make mistakes, because you know you will, because if you haven't chanted before, there's going to be mistakes along the way. You can't be perfect right from the beginning. You can't be an expert right from the beginning. So as you make mistakes, just laugh and have fun with it. Enjoy it. Do it multiple times. Maybe your life partner, your children hear you, maybe your neighbors hear you, but just be respectful and, you know, find a nice place to chant and don't be shy. Really let the voice out. Really let the air flow. You know, don't be too shy. You really would like to just kind of build up your confidence and being at ease. Don't feel rushed when you're chanting. It should just be nice and easy and gradual. Never rushed, never pressured, not more sa. right, no rushing, just even your breaths. Nice, gradual, just kind of easing the mind into chanting. And it can be really fun and really beneficial, almost like you're floating on a cloud to a certain extent as you're starting to chant and an ease into meditation. As you have questions, you're welcome to reach out through Facebook, private message, scheduling a personal guidance session or asking questions in class. Now for the next three weeks, what we'll be doing is coming together, I'll be refreshing you and we'll be chanting together as a group But then I'm going to provide an opportunity for anybody who would like to, in Zoom, to do some chanting on your own, open up your mic so we can all hear you chant, and then I'll provide you some guidance and some coaching along the way. So you're welcome to come into Zoom in order to do that each Wednesday now for the next three Wednesdays. And we'll still chant together as a group. We'll start out the class with going through all three chants three times. And then we'll open things up to anybody who would like to volunteer to actually chant with your open mic. And then after I hear you chant, I'll give you a little bit of guidance to help you improve along the way. And then we'll all enjoy hearing you chant. So the next class is going to be on Wednesday next week, and then we'll have a series of three more. This. Sunday, coming up in the group learning program, we're in chapter six, which is The Middle Way, Walking the Middle Way. This is a really short chapter, so it won't take you very long to read that and you'll be able to understand the teachings of The Middle Way there as it applies to all of the Buddhist teachings and all aspects of your life. Learning this really simple teaching can really have a profound effect as you learn it more and more. You have the reading there in the book, but then I'm also going to be discussing it in class on Sunday. And then, of course, next week, we'll be doing chanting together. So have a lovely rest of your day. I'll see you either this Sunday or next Wednesday, possibly both. Have a lovely day. Sawadee,
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.